0: Well, we're about to embark on what's been described by some as a theological roller coaster ride. Anybody like roller coasters? Wow, not so many hands. We live in the sh- okay. We live in the shadow of Magic Mountain, but nobody likes roller coasters. That's great. To me, roller coasters are both thrilling and terrifying all at the same time. And you know how, at the end of it, you're always excited. You went on it. It's always enjoyable at the end, but sometimes I'm not sure that I'm willing to go through all the terror to get to the joy at the end. Can I get an amen? Amen. Well, that may be the case for you today as we begin our study of the doctrine of election together. If you're visiting with us this morning, you've picked a, a wonderful Sunday to be here as we dive into Romans chapter 9 and talk about the doctrine of election. But my hope is by the time we've gone through this chapter of Scripture over the next six weeks or so that the joy at the end is going to be worth all of the challenges that we're about to go through together. Dr. James Boyce once called Romans 9 the most difficult portion of the entire Bible. That's saying a lot because Dr. Boyce knew what he was talking about, right? The most difficult portion of the entire Bible. Now, in my opinion, there are more difficult passages of Scripture. You know, some of those, especially Old Testament passages that that are prophetic in nature. I think those things are harder, but I think this is what Dr. Boyce was trying to say. It's not that Romans 9 is really difficult to understand. It's actually very straightforward, but it is one of the most difficult passages to accept and to submit to. Isn't that true? It's actually pretty clear, pretty straightforward. There aren't a lot of nuances to the language, but it is hard to accept and submit to. And the reason for that is because Deeply rooted within the heart of man is a desire to shape God in the way that we wish He would be, not the way He's revealed Himself to be. We all have a God complex to some extent where we say, well, if I were God, I would do it this way, and we have this idea that, well, God should be this particular way rather than just letting the text of Scripture tell us who God is. We'd like God to be an equal opportunity Savior. One who loves everyone just the same. A God who would be completely fair, giving everyone an equal chance to be saved. And one more thing, we'd like our salvation to be linked in at least some small way to something good in ourselves. That we might have some responsibility in it. To say, the reason that I'm saved is because in spite of my faults, I'm pretty lovable. Or there's, there's enough decency and goodness in me to where God should choose me plus I was willing to turn to God and choose to believe in Jesus. And so we want to at least some extent to say I was responsible for it. Well, those desires are all deeply rooted in us in our fallen condition. Here's the thing, Romans 9 knocks every one of those things down. It takes them all out of the way. Paul's going to show us that when it comes to salvation, God has always made choices and not just choices between nations, but choices between individuals. And those choices are rooted in one thing and one thing only, His sovereign purpose in election, not in anything good or decent within us. Again, that's not hard to understand, but it is hard to accept. Now, I want to reiterate what I've said a couple times in recent weeks. Uh, I'll say it again. Embracing the doctrine of election and all of its challenge and glory in Romans 9 and other places, Ephesians 1 and other places in Scripture, it is a process for most people. It's a process. It's something you come to grips with over time as you continue to dive into the text of Scripture. So if you're here this morning and you're not sure about it, but your heart and your mind is open to what the Spirit has for you this morning, I would say welcome. I've been there too, wrestled with it for many years, and it's something that you're going to have to work through. And what I'm going to tell you here is we'll work through it together by God's grace. That's the beauty of working through the scriptures as a church family. So grab your Bibles. Let's turn to Romans chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 6 to 13 this morning. All right, so last week we got into the roller coaster seat and we took that, you know, that long, slow ride up the track, you know, click, 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 click. Verses 1 to 5 felt like that going up the track, getting to the top those first five verses really set the stage for this entire unit of thought, all the way from chapter 9 to chapter 11, verses 1 to 5 set the historical context for all of it. Now, as I said last Sunday, Paul doesn't just dive into the doctrine of election in abstract. What he's trying to do here is answer a certain question. He's trying to deal with a particular historical objection. It's rooted there in his first century experience as he's been trying to share the gospel with both Jews and Gentiles all over the Mediterranean world. It just so happens that the answer to the problem that he's addressing is the doctrine of election. So he's going to lay it out in all of its glory, but understand, Paul didn't write chapters 9 to 11 as a systematic theology to say, well, now I'm going to take three chapters to write about election. It's written there and laid out there to address this particular Issue that comes up in verses 1 to 5. So here's the question, and we talked about it last Sunday, but I'll tell you again. If the Jews are God's chosen people, and they are, and if his promises to bless the Jews is certain, then why in Paul's day are the vast majority of Jews rejecting their Messiah? If they're chosen, if the promises to them are real, why are they walking away and rejecting their own Messiah? Here's the question. Does their rejection of Jesus mean that God's promises have failed? His promises to choose them and to bless them, have they failed? And if His promises to Israel have failed, well, then maybe the wonderful promise of Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from His love, maybe that can fail as well. So there's a crisis here. We have to recognize that throughout this whole section of Scripture, we have to come back to verses 1 to 5 to say it's all addressing this crisis. It's very, very personal for Paul, as we'll see in just a moment, because he has such a love and such a zeal for his fellow Jews, but it's broader than that. It's a universal crisis for Gentiles as well, in the sense that we want to be sure that all of God's promises to us in Christ are certain, and that He'll be faithful, So Paul's going to argue today that God's word and God's promises have not failed in relation to Israel, that he's always accomplished his purpose by way of a free choice of a believing remnant of Jews, that he's always maintained a believing remnant according to his grace. And in order to do that, he has to be absolutely sovereign over salvation. He's always been faithful. He's always had a remnant, and it's all possible because God is sovereign. So here on this now, for God to always keep His promises, and that's what we want, right? He has to be absolutely sovereign. We want Him to keep His promises, then we've got to affirm His sovereignty. He's got to be free to do as He pleases, free to do as He wills to do. See, if His purposes, if He purposes something, but He can't actually pull it off, then His promises are uncertain, right? Right? And if some spiritual power or some human being can somehow thwart his will, then he's not sovereign and ultimately he's untrustworthy. So if you want God's promises to hold true, hear me now, you have to let God be God. You can't shape him as you want to shape him. You can't make him say, well, this is the way I would do it. You have to let God be God if you want him to be absolutely true to his promises. Now that sounds reasonable on the surface, but I know deep within our hearts we want to rebel against that idea. It's who we are as human beings. But here's the thing. You cannot have it both ways. This is really foundational. You cannot have it both ways. You can't say, well, I think everything should be absolutely fair and equal and that human beings ought to be the decisive factor in salvation. And at the same time say, I want God to be so sovereign that His promises can't fail. Which is it going to be? Because human beings are fickle. Human beings don't do what you think they're going to do. So if you want to make humans responsible for it, you can't say God is sovereign, then the promises aren't certain. So which is it going to be? Paul's going to tell us very clearly here in Romans 9 which it's going to be. And friends, listen to this. We should rejoice in the fact that God is sovereign, every bit of it, because that means that his promise concerning his love for you cannot fail. So if you're going to choose man versus God, what's the obvious choice? It's God. You want God's sovereignty if you want his promises to be sure. So we're now on that roller coaster. We've gone up to the top of the hill. We've climbed to that. that very, you know you get to the very crest of the hill and, and you get to that weightless place? It's really weird. Some people love that feeling. Your stomach starts to tighten up. And what comes next? You're flying down that hill. You're going down this steep grade. So that's what we're about to do. You ready to dive in? Here we go. Actually, let's go back up to verse 1 let's go back up the hill again. (laughs) Click, 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 right? Oh, Do you guys like that feeling? It's terrifying. I hate heights. I actually like going down. Going up drives me crazy. But let's go back up. Let's go to verse 1. We'll refresh our memories from last Sunday. Again, listen to Paul's very real anguish as he writes verses 1 to 5. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. So that's the implication there, that his brothers, his kinsmen, are accursed, cut off from Christ. The vast majority of Jews have rejected their Messiah. Now, listen to all the advantages that they had as God's chosen people. This is what makes that situation so tragic. To whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, or the patriarchs, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever. Amen. So the Jews had everything, right? Most importantly, they had the Messiah himself who came out of Israel, but they've rejected him. And now comes Paul's reference to the crisis, verse 6. Listen, this is underline this or highlight it. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. It is not as though the word of God has failed. That is his primary statement that he's now going to flesh out in chapters 9, 10, and 11. So underline that, highlight it, whatever it is. That's really important. Now, here comes the explanation. Let's continue on in verse 6. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah Shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice or election would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, The older will serve the younger, just as it is written Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So the Word of God has not failed, Paul says. God's promises remain. No matter what creatures like us see or think with our very limited view, the Creator is and has always been faithful to His divine decree. His decree before the foundation of the world. He's faithful to it. There's been no change to His plan. He hasn't wavered in any way. And He's not been caught off guard by the choices of humanity. He's not surprised or caught off guard by the fact that so many of his chosen people, the Jews, have rejected Christ. Yeah, it's true that that's happened, that so many are now accursed and separated from Christ, but that does not mean that God's word has failed. And he explains why in verse six with this important statement, this is another one to underline, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. There's a little bit of interpretation in that. The Greek just simply says, they're not all Israel who are out of Israel or of Israel. That's a really important statement. That's why God's word has not failed. Because God's promises were given, get this now, for true Israel, for believing Israel, but not for all of ethnic Israel. Not all ethnic Israel is true and believing. I'm going to put a chart on the... Looks like an egg, doesn't it? Very simple chart that, that illustrates this particular topic. You have ethnic Israel and then a subset within an ethnic Israel that is believing Israel. God's promises were given for believing Israel, the true Israel. But not all ethnic Israel is true or believing. God chose a particular people. He made a covenant with Abraham. But did he promise to save every single Israelite in the history of mankind? No. No, he didn't. Of course not. There is a true Israel, and God's saving promises are for them, and those promises to those people have never failed. Really important to get that. That's Paul's primary assertion here, and throughout chapters 9, 10, and 11, he's going to continue to support that assertion. There is true Israel, believing Israel, and there is a larger group known as ethnic or national Israel. Now, Paul continues in verse 7, making the same point, but in a slightly different way. Look at verse 7. For they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. And so his use of the term children there is a reference to believing Israel, to the subset of ethnic Israel who believe. The rest of ethnic Israel who don't believe are not considered to be children. That idea of children has an idea of saving grace to it. In other words, having Abraham's blood coursing through your veins is not sufficient for salvation. Do you hear that? Salvation has always been by what? By faith, not by genealogy. It doesn't matter what, what your genealogy is. It doesn't matter what type of blood flows through your veins. You can't be saved just because so-and-so is your father or so-and-so is your mother or, hey, I have some ancestors in my past. It doesn't work that way. Salvation comes not simply by being born into this world with the right ancestors, but by being born again by the Spirit of God. Nobody is born saved, right? We all know that. We're born with original sin, separated from God. It's those who are born again by the Spirit who will be saved. That's true today, and it was true back then in the Old Testament. Sometimes we, we bifurcate the Bible. We say, well, things were one way in the Old Testament, and they're different now. That's not true. God has operated differently within those two dispensations with His people, but salvation has always been by faith, by being born again of the Spirit, By the way, this is not the first time in which Paul has said this to the Romans. If you remember way back in chapter 2, which was like a year ago, he laid down this principle. Here's what he said in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. For he's not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not for men, but from God. So hear me now, being a true Jew, or as he puts it here in chapter 9, being a part of true Israel has nothing to do with outside appearance, has nothing to do with genealogy, has nothing to do with works of the flesh like circumcision. What matters is an inward work of God's Spirit upon the heart, just like it is today. It's really important to understand that. Now, just in case you haven't understood Paul's point, he reinforces it at the end of verse 7 and going into verse 8. Look at the text. Through Isaac, your descendants will be named, verse 8. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the what? Of the promise, underline promise, who are regarded as descendants. Now, we'll get to Isaac in just a moment. Put him aside for a second. Once again, physical lineage is insufficient for being called a children, a child of God, to be a part of God's family. Being a child of the flesh will profit you nothing. Even if you can trace your genetic code back to Abraham or one of the patriarchs, being a child of the flesh profits you nothing. So all Israelites are children of the flesh, but only some are children of God, exactly as it shows there on the screen. Children of flesh, smaller subset, children of God. And the difference lies not in anything physical, but in that single phrase in verse 8, children of the promise. The children of the promise are regarded as true Israel. I'm going to give you another, another graph so that you can see this. God has a line of promise that he's established. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. One was a child of promise. Isaac had two children, Esau and Jacob. One was a child of promise. One direction goes ethnic Israel. Or national Israel, the other is spiritual Israel, or believing Israel. So the question is, why is Yahweh the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not the God of Abraham, Ishmael, and Nebaioth? Because of the line of promise. That's it, and that line runs through Isaac and not through Ishmael. So the word of God has not failed because it was only meant for believing Israel, only for the children of God through the line of promise, and to those God has been absolutely faithful. Does it make sense? Yeah? Not if you're, you're tracking with me. Good, because that's what Paul wants to get through to us today. The Word of God has not failed because not all of Israel is believing Israel. Now, he's going to use two Old Testament illustrations for his people, and it makes sense that he would use the Old Testament because, remember, as he communicates to the church at Rome, he knows that Gentiles are the majority in the church. There's a small minority of Jews, and they're, they're struggling because their particularly Jewish culture in the church is being overwhelmed by all these Gentiles, and the Jews are looking around saying, yeah, we believe in Christ, but where is everybody? Where's all my fellow Jews? And so he's communicating with them in particular. He's reassuring them, and he's going to use Old Testament illustrations to make his point. The first one comes uh, concerns Abraham's son, Isaac. It says in the text there, through Isaac your descendants will be named, verse 7. So this takes us back to Genesis chapter 12. Rather than read the whole text, I'm going to sort of summarize the story for you. A lot of you guys know the story of of Isaac and Ishmael and Sarah and Hagar, but I'll I'll summarize it quickly for you guys. God calls Abraham to leave the land of Babylon, right? Abraham was a uh, pagan pagan. He was living in in the city of Ur in Babylon, and God says, get up, leave your relatives, and go to a land that I will show you. And God gives to Abram a series of great promises, the beginning of an unfolding covenant that includes making him into a great nation to bless him, to bless his descendants, and through him to bless every family on the face of the earth. That is a big promise. We call this the Abrahamic covenant, right? Fast forward to Genesis 15, Abram cries out to God because he has no children. He has no heir. And the Lord reassures him saying this, Abram, look up at the heavens and count the stars. So shall your descendants be. And immediately after that, in Genesis 15, 6, it's a really important verse. It says that Abram believed God. He believed his promises and what? It was credited to him as what? As righteousness. Salvation by faith in the Old Testament. It was credited to him as righteousness because he believed God and his promises. Then in Genesis 16, Abram's wife Sarai comes into the picture. Now, up until this point in the story, Sarai appears to be barren. The text says she's born Abram no children. It's been 10 years since God gave this promise, and she has no children. And so, again, the reader is left to wonder, well, is God faithful? He made this great promise. He did this covenant and now 10 years pass, right? We would all be impatient, would we not? Is God going to be faithful? He promised a myriad of descendants, but Abram and his wife can't even produce one, (laughs) right? I mean, this is a big thing. Really, every family in the world is going to be blessed. We can't produce one child. So how is this possibly going to work out? Now, what comes next in the story? And some of you guys know this sounds very, very strange to the modern ear, right? Sarai believes, rightly, that it's the Lord who's prevented them from having a child. She's right about that. But at the same time, there's no escaping the fact that for an ancient woman to be barren was something shameful. Ancient women saw this as a divine punishment, as some type of, uh, of, uh, you know, displeasure that God has. And so, without really a reason given in the text, Sarai cooks up a plan to fix the problem. She does something not uncommon in that age, but something that no wife today would ever do. She says to Abram, why don't you go in and lay with my maidservant, and you'll produce an heir for me. By the way, this is sort of a surrogate situation. You'll produce an heir for us. No woman today would do that, but that was not uncommon back in the day. Now, her maidservant, Hagar, happens to be an Egyptian, not a Hebrew, and that's an important part of the story. But at the time, that must have seemed like a really workable solution. But it turns out to create more problems than it solves. So Abram, it says, listen to his wife. That's also an important part of the story. He, He fails to provide spiritual leadership here. He fails to make a right choice. He listens to his wife's very practical but very poor advice. And Hagar becomes pregnant. The plan works to some extent. And the news of this pregnancy is announced to her by an angel The angel says, you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name, what? Ishmael. Ishmael. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all of his brothers. Now, Ishmael is born when Abram is 86 years old. Now, I know that sounds old, but he's going to live to be 175. So it's really about halfway through his life. We turn the page over to Genesis 17, 13 years have passed, and Ishmael is now a young teenager. And as far as anybody can tell, Ishmael is going to be Abram's only son, Ishmael's going to be his heir, and it's through Ishmael that these great promises are going to be delivered through. That's what you would have thought, because here's Ishmael, strapping young lad, 13 years old, Abram has an heir. Praise the Lord, right? Only that's not God's plan. That's not God's plan. So God comes to Abram again, instructing him to begin practicing circumcision as a sign of the covenant, and he renames him, Abram, to Abraham, the father of many nations. And he renames Sarai, Sarah, which means princess or noble woman. And then listen to what God promises about Sarah. God says, I will bless her, and indeed, I will give you a son by her. That's shocking news. She shall be a mother of nations, and kings of peoples will come from her. Now, that, that's a game changer because there's Ishmael, the older, the firstborn son. He's 13 now. He looks like the child of promise. Where does that leave him? Remember, he's the firstborn son. He's greatly loved by his father. In fact, Abraham, once he had finished laughing about the idea that his 90-year-old wife was going to be pregnant, he said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abram was deeply, deeply uh, affectionate towards his son Ishmael, loved him greatly. In other words, this is what he said, "'Please, Lord, may Ishmael live under your blessing.'" But God says what? No. No, that's not my choice. It's not my plan. "'Sarah will bear you a son, and you shall name him Isaac.'" But listen to God's gracious response to Abraham's request. It's not like God said, "'Well, sorry that you care for Ishmael. He's He's a goner.'" Here's what he says. "'As for Ishmael, I've heard you, Abraham.'" Behold, I will bless him. He shall become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But here's the key statement, Genesis 17, 21. But my covenant, God says, my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. It's a quick summary of the story. Now, that's the basis for what Paul writes in verse 9. Come back to Romans 9. Romans 9, verse 9. Paul writes, for this is the word of promise, at this time, or at the appointed time, I, the Lord, will come, and Sarah shall have a son. So the big idea here is this, even though Ishmael was a physical child of Abraham, and he was the oldest child that generally came with privileges, that didn't make him a child of promise. Didn't make him a child of promise. He's Abraham's son by the flesh, but he will not be a part of true believing Israel. See, Ishmael was born out of the plans and devices of men, not of God. When Sarai said to her husband, take my maidservant and lay with her, perhaps I'll have a child that way, what should Abraham have done? He should have said, no, that's not the way it works. I'm not going to take this into my own hands. God has promised me descendants. I will trust him and his timing. But he didn't. He went passive. He listened to this very poor advice of his wife, and he did what he could do in his own strength to fix the problem. But all he and Hagar ended up doing was producing a child of the flesh, being produced by natural means. But listen to the contrast now. Isaac is very different. He's not a child of the flesh. He's not by ordinary means. His birth was not natural. It required miraculous power, the bringing to life of Sarah's womb at the age of 90. That's a miracle, ladies. Amen? Amen. And that's the implication of verse 9. At the appointed time, I, the Lord, will come to you, Abraham, and I promise that Sarah will have a son. His miraculous intervention was the only explanation for Isaac's birth. And here's the cool part for us 4,000 years later this serves as a picture of how God saves even today. How anyone becomes a child of God, even today. The decisive work is God's, not ours. We can try to do all kinds of things and we can can run around and blah, 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 we do all that stuff, the decisive work is God's. Every person in this room who has been saved, it's a miracle. It's a miraculous intervention by God in His Spirit. So there's a picture of this for us today. Our spiritual rebirth is a miracle. It is not achievable by explainable natural means. It requires God's miraculous intervention. I make the promise, God says. I bring my promises to pass. Your help is not needed. My promises are declarations of what I intend to bring about by my sovereign power for my glory. That's still true today. Every single time you see somebody bow their knee to Christ, a miraculous intervention has taken place. Life is given. So there's our first illustration, and it's a good one. It, it shows a very, a very, two very distinct paths between Ishmael and Isaac. One a child of flesh, one a child of the promise. Now, let's look at the second Old Testament illustration, one that takes us back to Genesis 25. And again, I'll I'll summarize the story for you. This one's shorter. Isaac grows up, the child of the promise, and he's 40 years old, and he marries a girl named Rebecca. And for 20 years, they naturally try to have a child, right? He runs into the same problem as pops. For 20 years, they're unable to naturally have children. And so just like his father... Isaac pleads with the Lord for an heir, and God honors his prayer. Rebecca becomes pregnant, not just with one, but with two, two sons. Praise the Lord, right? And the Lord says to her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. That's not good news. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. Now, unlike parents today, where we... We pick the names for our kids by what sounds good, what goes with our last name, or what the trends are. You know, we look up the list, what are the top 10 names of kids and all that. The Hebrews did it very differently. They named their children very practical names. So when, when the twins are born, the first one comes out and the text says that he's so hairy that his body looks like a has a thick coat of fur on it. Hmm. And so they name him in Hebrew, Harry. All right. Well, that translates, that's Esau. It means hairy. And when the other twin comes out, he is grasping at his brother's heel. And so they give him a very unique name. I know it's very common today, Yaakov or Jacob. We, it's very common today, but it means heel catcher. Okay. Practical. <laughs> Sounds good, right? But really what the, what the word means is to to take the place of another. He's grabbing. He's trying to to supplant that other person. And that's really what the name, the picture of the name means. And it's very prophetic based on what's going to happen. Now, later on, we learn more about these two twin brothers, and they both have major character flaws. Esau grows up to be an outdoorsman and a skillful hunter. He's hairy, right? He's rugged. Uh, Probably got a big old great beard, right? I mean, can you picture it? He's his own man. He doesn't really care much about other people. He just wants to be out there doing his thing Some people have surmised that maybe he was an irresponsible young man. Jacob, on the other hand, prefers to stay at home. He's a thinker. He's quietly thinking and plotting his future. And so today, this would be like having, you know, if you're a parent, and some of you guys are, you're my age, you've had kids. You're like, I've got one son who's a middle linebacker on the football team, and I got one son who's the head of the chess club. Neither are bad, they're just different. But those are the the pictures that we have of these two boys. By the way, not surprisingly, dad loves which one? He loves Esau, right? Esau was everything that an ancient man wanted to be. Big, strong, rugged, hairy, all that good stuff, right? (laughs) Mom loves Jacob. Jacob was smart and tenacious. And one day, he's going to overtake his brother in every way. And it makes me laugh. It sort of resembles what you see in the world today. I don't know why I came up with this. But look back to your high school days. You know the big stud athlete? He sort of peaked in high school. You know what I mean by that? And it was that quiet kid off in the corner who's studying all the time, who ends up running a tech company becoming a multimillionaire, right? It's those quiet kids in the corner that actually rule the world. And Jacob is going to supplant this big, strong, rugged man, Esau. Now, come back to Romans 9, verse 10. Here's what Paul writes in connection with this. And not only this, and by the way, that, that's a little connective phrase that tells us that Paul's going to, about to give a second illustration, this one more important. Not only this, he says, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father, Isaac. So here's what's going on. Paul is using a classic rhetorical device here. He's already given his audience a pretty convincing illustration by using Isaac and Ishmael. But just in case there's still some objectors in his audience in the church at Rome, he's going to double down now. He's going to provide an even more compelling illustration of his primary assertion concerning true Israel. He says, basically, you weren't fully convinced by Isaac and Ishmael? Fine. How about these two guys? How about Jacob and Esau? That one didn't work for you. What about these guys? Do you have any more objections? See, somebody might have said this about, about Ishmael. Well, God didn't choose him to be the child of promise because he had an Egyptian mother. He wasn't fully Jewish, right? We, we'd call this, he's, he's only a half-breed. He, he, he doesn't really fit the bill. So maybe that's why. He's the son of a Gentile, so that's why God didn't choose him. So you see, picture Paul saying, fine, okay, all right, you want to object to that? How are you going to object to God's choice between Jacob and Esau? Think about it. First, they were twins, right? They came from the very same womb. Second, they were conceived by the very same parents, both of which were Hebrews. So the conditions of their birth are absolutely identical, and that means that any choice between them would have to come from God and not from man. So what Paul is doing here is systematically knocking down every human objection to God's sovereignty over salvation and election. But he's not done. It gets even more compelling. Verse 11, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her "The older will serve the younger. So, take a deep breath now. Not only is election not rooted in circumstances, It's also not rooted in our human will or in our human deeds, good or bad. Verse 11 makes this very clear. God had decided the destiny of these two sons of Rebekah and the nations that they represent even before they were born. Now, that's not fair. Come on, Jeff, that's not fair. Don't argue with me, argue with the text. That's what it says. Not only that, God's choice was made long before their character was revealed in any way. Before they could do righteous things or before they could do unrighteous things, before they could believe in God or not believe in God, the choice was made. Is this hard? Before they'd done anything good or bad, before they had decided to believe or not believe, God had made a choice. So we could talk about the two boys, and, and we had talk about how Esau was a knucklehead. You know, he 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 came in from a long day of hunting one time and he was so famished, I'm gonna die. That he trades his birthright for a bowl of stew. What a knucklehead. Right? He has no, he's a YOLO guy, right? You only live once, right? It's Live in the moment. I don't care about the future. What good is my birthright right now? I need stew. And Jacob, of course, lies to his father and he, he deceives him and steals the blessing from Esau. So here's the bottom line. That really doesn't matter when we talk about the line of promise. Because both Jacob and Esau were sinners, like you, and like me, and like the rest of humanity. But those works, the bad ones, and even the good things they did, get, were not the deciding factor in God's promise of election and salvation. They were not. The deciding factor was God's purpose and God's choice, period, full stop. This is the hard part that we have to accept and submit to. It was God's purpose and God's choice, period. That's what Paul intends to communicate here in verse 11, right? So that his purpose, according to election, would stand, not because of the works of Jacob and Esau, but because of him who calls. Him who calls. How were you saved? God called you. He chose you before the foundation of the word world. In time and space, He called you. He drew you to himself. He gave you the gift of faith, and He justified you. And today you stand in that in Christ because of Him who calls. That's why. And just to emphasize how God has the authority to overturn the traditions of men, He flips the script and says, by the way, I've chosen the younger one over the older. Just so that you know that I have the authority to do that. It's my prerogative. I do as I please. My purpose has come to pass. I'm sovereign. And so, folks, this is why we speak of the doctrine of unconditional election unconditional. It was not the twins' parents that made the difference. It was not their birth order. It was not foreseen good deeds. It was not foreseen bad deeds. It was nothing in them, nothing in the circumstances that moved God to choose Jacob and not Esau. The choice was unconditional. The choice was made by God alone. That's what the text says. Now, before we finish with verse 13, which I know is very controversial, we'll get there, Let me make sure that you haven't heard what I've said this morning and jumped to some really bad conclusions, because I know this tends to happen. The doctrine of unconditional election does not remove the reality of human responsibility or choice. It does not remove it. Let me repeat that. The doctrine of unconditional election does not remove the reality of human responsibility. I'm going to have a ton to say about this as we go through chapter nine, but I'll quickly sketch this out because I don't want to leave you without some word about it this morning. Unconditional election does not make us spiritual robots, pre-programmed to sin or not to sin. We make very real choices in this life. We make very real choices in this life, and we all choose to sin. In fact, we're all born in slavery to sin. We can't not sin, but we choose to sin by our own volitional ability. We choose to sin. And as such, none of us deserves to be chosen of God and saved from His wrath. But praise God, He chooses to save some. But the hard truth of that is He decides not to choose others. That's just a reality. I know that's hard, but it's His prerogative. He does as He pleases. He says this over and over and over again in Scripture. But unconditional election does not take human choice out of the equation. This teaching in Romans 9 does not contradict the truth that Jacob and Esau and you and I make real life choices with real life consequences. Jacob is saved by God's grace through faith. Just as we are. And Esau is condemned for his evil deeds and because of his unbelief. Now, how did Jacob come to put his faith in God? The same way we did. Because God elected him to salvation, gave him the gift of faith, and justified him in his sight. That's a that's it. Friends, that's the only way anyone in the history of mankind has ever been saved. Because God chose them, He called them, He drew them, He gave them the gift of faith. By the way, when we receive the gift of faith, do we make a real choice to love Jesus? Absolutely. I know I did. I remember it well. I know I've told the story before. One day, I wasn't interested in the things of God, and a week later, I'm reading the Bible. What's going on here? Right? God was drawing me to himself. And on that moment that I prayed to receive Christ, I loved him with all of my heart. It was a very real choice. Now, I know behind the scenes, it's like the Wizard of Oz, peel back the curtain, I know now what was really going on. God was doing that work to bring me alive, to regenerate my heart, to give me the gift of faith so I could turn to God and be saved. And I wanted to be saved. I made a very real choice. So we don't affirm robot theology. Old Testament believers like Jacob were saved as an act of God's grace as they made a very real choice to believe in God and in His promises. And on the other side, those who weren't saved in the Old Testament were condemned just like people are today because they make a real choice to sin against God and a real choice to reject Jesus as their Savior, dying in unbelief. That's why we do missions. That's why we evangelize. That's why we share our testimony. Nobody in human history has ever died and stood on the precipice of hell and been able to say, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve it. Because their choice to sin was their own. Their choice not to submit to God and not to worship God was intentional. They do exactly what they want to do in their heart. They want to call the shots. They want to function as the God of their own lives. And they die in unbelief. And so here's the bottom line. And Paul's going to flesh this out as we go through Romans 9. Listen to me now. The elect will choose to believe. The non elect will not. But real choices are made. <laughs> now, I know that's not easy. I know there's no simple answer to the why of it or the how of it. What I can tell you is that Scripture does not apologize for giving us both sides of that coin divine sovereignty, human responsibility. And we have to be able to hold those things in tension, and we have to be able to trust God's divine word over and above our limited understanding of human logic. It's a tension, but scripture is very clear, and it doesn't apologize for those two things. So let's finish the passage now. Verse 13, just as it is written, and this comes out of Malachi chapter 1, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. When we talk about God hating someone, we have to be careful here because the human feeling of hatred is almost always sinful. God doesn't hate that way. So we have to be really careful here. God's hatred is righteous because it's always rooted in pure truth. God hates what is contrary to His nature. God hates what is contrary to love. He hates sin, He hates wickedness, and rightfully so. And here I'm going to say it, He hates sinners as well. It is so ingrained in evangelicalism today that God doesn't hate sinners. The Bible says He hates sinners. This is, I know this is hard. I know some of you already, you're like crumpling up your sermon notes. This is too much, Jeff. God hates sinners. You cannot separate sin from, from sinners. Guys, sin doesn't float around out there on its own, not connected to a person. God can't judge a sin without judging a sinner. They go together. It's illogical to say that God hates the sin but doesn't hate the one who sins. By the way, there's places in Scripture, Psalm 5 most notably, says, You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit, etc., etc.." But it reminds us that if we're not for God's grace, we'd be objects of his hatred. See, we're born enemies of God. Do you understand how strong that language is? Enemies of God? Were it not for his grace, we'd be the objects of his hatred. In fact, the truth about his hatred highlights how gracious he is towards people like you and I. Because he's not obligated to do anything but hate us and judge us because of our very real choices to rebel against him and to sin over and over and over and over and over, over, over over and over and over. And to thumb our nose at him as we do it. But in his sovereignty, he's chosen not to hate some. In fact, he's chosen to do the very opposite. For enemies of his, he's chosen to lavish us with spiritual blessings and eternal life. Guys, that's the story. That's the story. That's what makes us come and sing praises to God. That we deserve this, but we got that. That we ought to be objects of His hatred and wrath, but instead we're objects of His blessing and grace. That's why we sing. So what about Esau? God hated him, and rightfully so. He deserved to be condemned for his sins, for his unbelief. What about Jacob? God loved him, and graciously so, and he didn't deserve it. Jacob was in the line of promise. That's why he was loved. And therefore, he and his descendants became objects of God's covenant blessings. Esau was not a child of promise, and his descendants were excluded from those blessings. Folks, this is what it means to be God, to make these choices. And we're going to find out later in this chapter, that's his glory to make those sovereign choices. It's even possible to say that there are two aspects to God's hatred. Passively, he withholds his electing love from Esau, but actively, he hands Esau over to his own nature, which is wickedness. And God is righteously angry towards that wickedness, and in the end, Esau is judged and condemned. And on that day, Esau will not be able to say, I don't deserve this. His own sins will shut his mouth and his own conscience will confirm the truth of God's judgment. And Jacob, on the other hand, will do what in this room, for those of us who are saved, he will do what we ought to do and that is tremble with fear and wonder why we of all people would be objects of God's grace. And as we wrap up, I'm hoping that during this message that question came up for you. Why choose me, Lord? Why choose me? Who am I that God should ever be so gracious to me? It's a question that we ought to meditate upon all the time. And the reason we ought to meditate on it is because it leads us to the fullness of God's love. We can focus on the hatred, but because of His grace, we can focus on the fact that He's chosen me and that leads me to the absolute fullness of His love. Listen to this. It's only when we grasp what it means to be chosen freely by God on the basis of nothing in us that we can fully understand His love. As soon as we start taking some credit for it, we start saying, well, it's because I'm good, or because I had this or that, or I was super spiritual, or I was smart. Guess what? We diminish His glory, we diminish His sovereignty, and we diminish His love. It's because we know we've been freely chosen by a sovereign God for no reason in us that we can understand the fullness of His love. And this is the purpose that we have on our days on the earth, to know and enjoy and praise and display the glory of God's free and sovereign grace. That's our purpose. That's our mission, to show the world this gracious God. And beneath that meaning, supporting it all, is this massive assurance that we have that because God is sovereign, His purposes will stand. Because God is sovereign, His love for us will never fail. So, I'm looking at your countenance out there, and I know this is hard. I told you guys, that's why we did two weeks to prepare for this, right? I said, this is going to be hard. Let me caution you as we finish. If you're struggling with this, if you're struggling with this whole concept of election, be careful that you don't try to play God and tell Him how He should save. We often do that. We're like, I don't like this. Therefore, I will put myself in God's chair and I will decide whether he's doing it right or not. That's a dangerous game to play. Be careful not to stand above Scripture demanding that it should say this or that. Be careful that you don't assume that your heart is righteous enough to to judge the goodness of God, that your wisdom is great enough to judge the wisdom of God. Be cautious. There are a thousand reasons that we can't even fathom for why God does what He does. Be glad in this, the word of God has not failed. Be glad in this, that you can count on his promise in Romans 8, that nothing, nothing can separate you from his love in Christ. To him be the glory. So we've come to the bottom of the hill on the roller coaster, the first bottom of the hill. Can you feel your stomach getting sucked out? Right? You know that feeling, right? You go down, uh, and your stomach tightens up. We've gotten to the bottom of the hill. So far, is it enjoyable? Is it thrilling? Is it hard? It is. Here's the thing. It's just the first hill. Because Paul is going to keep building on this argument. He's going to keep building it. There's more twists and turns to the track coming up, more hills to go down. And it's going to get harder and harder until his argument is airtight. And at that moment, friends, we're going to have to stand back and say, I may not like it. I may not fully understand it but I will worship this sovereign God. Amen? Pick it up next week. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for for our church family that above all else this morning, even if we're a little bit stunned, if we're a little bit challenged by this, if we're even hurting a little bit, Lord, this is personal for so many of us. For me, we have family members, friends who aren't saved, and this is hard. But I pray above all else, Lord, that we would walk out of here today open to what your text says. To really do the study on our own. To say, Lord, show me what is true in this. Are you that sovereign? And what does that mean for me? And what does that mean for those around me? My family, my friends. What does it mean, Lord? Show me. May your spirit move amongst us to, to guide us into truth. And to give us the comfort we need to understand this important doctrine more and more. That at some point, Lord, we would submit to your word because it has authority over us, and we would just step back and worship you because of your goodness and your grace. Help us to do that, Lord. May you be glorified in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.